I'm Haley B. Miller, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends. Welcome to a special episode of Ohio Politics Explained. Today, we're talking about the chaos that plagues Ohio's youth prison system. A USA Today Network Ohio investigation found the state is failing in its basic mission to help kids who commit crimes. Some of them end up injured or paralyzed. Some died. And those who make it out alive are likely to wind up back in prison or, to be frank, may end up dead anyway. Meanwhile, Ohio taxpayers are footing the bill for a failed system and families are left to pick up the pieces. They need to do something about it because children are going to continue to get hurt. They're going to continue to die and they're going to continue to make parents believe that there is nothing they can do about it when something happens to their children. With me today are Laura Bischoff and Jordan Laird, who are part of the team of reporters digging into this. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get into things, just a heads up for our listeners, we're going to be discussing some really violent and disturbing incidents. So just take care of yourselves as you're listening to this. Laura, you've been covering the Department of Youth Services for a long time. Before we get into the details of this project, Give everyone a quick rundown of the youth prison system and how this is supposed to work. Well, essentially, Ohio has a network of local juvenile detention centers, which is where kids are held before they're adjudicated or the juvenile court version of found guilty on various charges. And those are run by the elected judges. And then there's three state youth prisons, and those are run by an appointee of Governor DeWine. Generally speaking, Ohio tries to keep kids out of detention because it leads to bad outcomes. Like there's a a much higher chance that kids will drop out of school if they have been incarcerated at any point. And these are kids who come from really difficult circumstances. A lot of them have experienced traumas and they are in the juvenile justice system because they're accused of being involved in crimes that would be considered felonies had they been older. Across Ohio, there's about 500 kids in youth prisons, another 200 on parole, and then there's hundreds more who are being held in local detention systems. Now, keep in mind that the government assumes the role of parent when a kid is incarcerated. That means that the state has to provide housing, food, education, medical care, job training, and pretty much anything else the courts order. These are supposed to be safe, secure places where kids receive the intensive services that are really needed to help turn their lives around. But in many instances, you know, kids are coming out worse off. Are there any major differences between sort of the state-run youth prisons and then these local detention centers that you referenced? They have a lot of the same issues going on. We found a lot of staffing shortages at both issues with violence and issues with extended stays in solitary or quarantine. But there were some particular issues for to DYS that Laura might be able to speak to. Yeah, DYS is just, it's been a long circumstances of just chronic understaffing. And it seems like a lot of the problems stem from that. A year ago, we had a guard who was attacked at at Indian River and um, like very severely injured. And he had been working alone and they kind of blamed it on staff problems. There was also a riot that broke out at that same uh, facility up in Maslin. And again, it was like having to do with, with staff shortages and issues there. And yet here we are a year later and they still have the same chronic staff problems. Yeah. So you guys put a lot of work into this project. 
eight months, you talked to over 100 kids, parents, DYS employees, many of whom who spoke under the condition of anonymity because they were concerned about retribution. There were a lot of records requests. You talked some about the staffing shortages. What were some of your other key findings here? So again, with the staff shortages, a lot of employees are forced to work overtime, like back-to-back 16-hour shifts. Because they don't have enough people to staff these work posts, kids are locked in their rooms for extended periods of time, which means that they're less likely to get the services that they're entitled to. They're also going to be very unhappy when they are brought out for bathroom breaks. Fights can erupt at any moment. Employees are very, in the, in the youth system, they're very restricted about how they can respond to to assaults and attacks. They're not allowed to like punch back. They have to mostly, you know, give bear hugs and handcuffs and sometimes they they use pepper spray. And as these stories show, a lot of these problems have really horrible consequences. You mentioned the prison guard in Indian River. His name's David Upshaw and he got beaten horribly by an incarcerated teen. He is a retired cop, an army veteran, and he got into this job because he wanted to help kids. But this ended up changing his life for the worse. A year later, he still uses a walker and he deals with vertigo and PTSD. And when asked about it, his wife did not mince words about who is to blame. Somebody is going, and I've said it before, is going to die if they do not change these policies and change that upper tier staff because all they want to do is hide everything. Let's sweep it under the carpet. We talk about it, no. We don't tell anyone, no. And then it's think they think it's going to go away, but as long as I can draw breath, I'm not going to let it go away. It's not going to go away. I will speak, I will yell to the ends of the earth until something is done. What other cases did you guys find that really showed the system at its worst? I mean, I think the Upshaw case really shows that this is not a good situation for guards, just like it is not a good situation for the youth detainees. And one of the cases that we really profiled in this project was that of Damarian Allen, who was in the Franklin County Detention Center or youth jail on May 7th when he was in a 10 second fight that changed his life forever. This fight was never supposed to happen. He was supposed to be quarantined by court order ahead of being shipped off to DYS, a youth prison. And instead, a guard let him out on the floor at the same time as another youth. There was a 10 second fight. Damarian's neck was broken in four places. He was paralyzed. And then after that, an investigation found there was wrongdoing by the guards when they handled him. We got video of that incident after months of fighting for the records. And the video shows the guards really just dragging him by his arms while he insists that his neck is injured and begs to be put on his back. At one point, they kind of drop him face first on some stairs, and then eventually they get him into his cell and lay him on the floor, and he asks a nurse, what if I'm paralyzed? And we spent a lot of time with Damarian for this story and kind of just showing what life is like now for him. Um, His family really... He relies on them now to take care of all of his basic needs, and he's, he's got a long way to go to rebuild after his stay in juvenile jail, which was really supposed to help him get his life back on track. And now his life is different forever. Yeah, I mean, something that really changed his life and 
not only his life, but, you know, the lives of his family. You talked to spoke at length with his mom about just the logistics of taking care of him every day. And, you know, the family has um, filed a lawsuit against Franklin County employees um, just in the hopes of uh, getting some reforms and also uh, the financial means to take care of this kid for the rest of his life. There was another case also, this is really kind of shocking. Alana Richardson from Urbana, she and her boyfriend got into this fight in a scuffle with the cops back in January, and she landed at the Central Ohio Youth Center in Marysville. This is like a regional jail for multiple counties. And she had a a serious known heart condition, which ended up causing her death like two days after she arrived at the youth center. But the coroner said that she died between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m. on that Saturday, and the guards didn't find her until 325 in the afternoon. The logbooks show that the guards made 26 wellness checks on Alana in the interim, but they didn't notice anything was amiss. In the case of Alana, her mother, Roxanne Gillenwater, who is now raising Alana's one-year-old child, her mom really wants answers about what happened. Why didn't they check on my daughter? I was told that they did, but how how did they not find her until almost 4 o'clock in the afternoon when she passed away between 7 and 10 a.m.? Why wasn't her medical treatment given to her you know like she's a child and she was there to for for a mistake and a fight that she had with her boyfriend she didn't deserve to lose her life (laughs) so these of course are devastating situations i think they also represent a lot of the most extreme cases that you guys found in your investigation but that's not the only way dys is falling short it seems Yeah, I mean, like two thirds of the kids who are incarcerated in youth prisons, they need mental health services. And about 45% of them have individualized education plans. So they need, you know, specific education help. But Half of the behavioral health jobs are vacant in the Department of Youth Services, and about one in five teacher jobs are open. That makes a tough job rehabilitating troubled teens even more challenging. You know, the teachers in the DYS prisons, I mean, a number of them have been attacked and injured, meaning it makes it harder for them to do their jobs. A lot of them are afraid. And, you know, the other byproduct of this is that when kids are on lockdown, they're given like these worksheets. It's almost like a blizzard bag that you would get on a snow day for your kid. They get these little worksheets to complete. And a couple of different sources tell us like those worksheets aren't completed and they don't even know if the teachers even check them. For sure. I think they're also really struggling at these county jail facilities to educate these kids, particularly because these facilities are designed for short term stays for the juveniles and they're staying there a lot longer before they're shipped off to DYS. And there's also a lot of issues with with getting mental health care in these county facilities for kids. I've I've heard of parents not hearing about their kid making a suicide attempt until weeks later. Yeah, it seems like access to mental health care is a huge problem and one that can have really long-term consequences for these kids. Yeah, these are really troubled kids who go into these facilities. A lot of them have faced a lot of trauma in their lives, know somebody who was injured I think, guns. Like, I think uh, I was reading one report that said that it's some of the big uh, urban counties, about a third of the kids reported that somebody close to them had been murdered in the previous 12 months. Wow. All right. We just laid out a lot of problems with DYS, with these local facilities. What does Ohio need to do? I mean, where are we falling short? 
Well, I'd say like they, they really need to hire more people uh, and improve training at both the local and the, and the state level. And, you know, they could also do a bigger push to get more counties to embrace what's called the Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiative. This is a program that the Annie E. Casey Foundation rolled out to counties and to states across the country. Just like 19 of Ohio's 88 counties do this. And it's basically a very concerted effort to have the police and the courts and the schools and the families all work together to help kids avoid going into that criminal justice track. I would also say that like more transparency. These are systems that are cloaked in confidentiality laws. We had to really fight for public records with um, the Demarion Allen case and with other records from the Department of Youth Services. Guards are being threatened with discipline if they talk about DYS kids. And then I would also say that like this project required an enormous amount of resources, you know, over the last eight months. And it's really, we can do it because we have subscribers. And if, if you aren't a subscriber yet, then, you know, please consider this kind of work as, as a good reason to uh, sign up for a subscription. What are the leaders at DYS saying about these cases, about, you know, this wealth of information that you guys found? Well, you know, the director of the Department of Youth Services, Amy Ast, um, declined to sit down for an interview with us. Um, she answered a series of questions that we had submitted ahead of time in writing. She acknowledges that, like, you know, they have to, they're working on, on hiring. It's a tough environment in which to hire. And she also recognizes that recidivism is one of the ultimate measures about success. Um, this is something we didn't really cover yet, but, you know, 43% of kids who leave DYS within three years, they either return to the youth prisons or they go to the adult system. And there was also a study from, I think it was Nationwide Children's Hospital and a, a bunch of um, universities that compared incarcerated teens against those who've never been incarcerated, who are on Medicaid. And those who have been incarcerated face a, like a six-fold increase in chances that they'll die of an early death. Well, hopefully the work that you guys have done these past months will shine a light on this. Thank you both so much for being here today to discuss this. If you're listening, you can read all of the stories in this series on any of our websites, dispatch.com, cincinnati.com, beaconjournal.com, or anyone else in the Gannett Network. <laughs>